Hey, good morning there. You got Craig Davidson here of Taurus Agricultural Marketing. Uh, and we are pleased to have Corey Wilness here as well this morning from Crop Pro Consulting out of Nakam, Saskatchewan. Uh, say hi, Corey. Good morning. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on this morning and uh, being a part of our Taurus Agronomics Bites podcast. Um, you know, it's been, I think, five weeks or six weeks since we had our last one. Uh, and uh, today we got just two of us. And, you know, obviously our conversation today is around salinity and alkalinity and, and the issues that we face in agricultural production uh, here in Western Canada. But, but in all reality, I mean, this topic is, a, is really a world conversation issue in the production of agriculture. Um, and so for us, we're maybe going to maybe shed more light on what we deal with here, uh, in our, inside of our businesses, uh, and how we are trying to tackle it, uh, even though it's a world issue and we have lots of world expertise, uh, we're going to try to bring it down to what we see and what we deal with here and in, in, in our market in Western Canada. Uh, maybe Corey to start, tell us a little bit about yourself and your business and uh, some of the history uh, that you have here in, in uh, agriculture. Sure. Um, yeah, I was raised on a farm in northern Saskatchewan, cattle and grain. Got my degree at the U of S in 1996. I was an ag retail agronomist here locally in Nakam uh, for eight years. So got to work with all the local farmers got to know the local area and fertilizer products and weeds and so on. And then I started my own consulting company in 2003. Uh, wasn't too many of us back in the day. It was kind of a high risk thing. And yes. yeah. And then, then so crop row consulting in 2003 was mostly just agronomic services for farmers, generally full farm type services. And then in, 2008, we started offering variable rate fertilizer and seed with our swap maps technology. Um, yeah, and 2014, we started an ag tech company called Crop Domestic, which has uh, five software developers, and we develop software and hardware, crop records, swap box, and the swap maps technology that is being used across the, you know, North America internationally. And yeah, now we Crop Pro has 26 staff, mostly serving Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. It's kind of funny. I mean, it's, I would, I always say this agricultural world is a small world we live in because I, I got to know and meet Corey back in the late 90s you know I, I was living in saskatoon at the time working for a, a fertilizer company and, and Corey was in in the ag retail space as, a, as an agronomist and so here we are over 20 years later uh doing a podcast together so uh again thanks for coming on and you know i'm going to enjoy this conversation and and learn along with everybody else here this morning as as we uh talk about about uh, this issue so with your business, Corey Crop Pro Consulting, obviously being in operation for 17 years or 18 years now, <clears throat> obviously your goal has been to define variability 
in the production of agriculture at the field level. Uh, over those years, and you know, I guess I'm assuming over the course of hundreds of thousands and into the millions of acres mapped today with your SWAT map pros process, is it fair to say that every single field that you touch is dealing with some background level of variability? Yeah, variability for sure. <laughs> I guess I thought, yeah. thought you were going to say salinity, and then I was starting to think about <laughs> what percentage would have salinity. But yeah, obviously every field has variability, and there's always this, you know, idea that people think that they don't have ver variability. But even if you go into the really flat land and stuff like that, Regina Plains and the Red River Valley, that those people have had like a lot of wind erosion and that shows up on their EC maps. And of course, I always say water always sits somewhere. So whether you're in flat land or pothole land and sweat out a third of the ground is underwater and when wherever water collects, um, it, you know, takes things with it, mobile nutrients and, you know, affects how the crop grows and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, all land has variability. There's no question about that. Yeah. So that's, that's not a, Honestly, at this point, that's not even a topic of conversation. We're not debating whether or not land or a field, take one field, 160 acres, has got variability. You're saying every field, whether it's three inch of topography change in the Red River Valley, you're still seeing some change in that, in that landscape. Yeah, and I mean, basically, we're in those land types, definitely, it's it comes down to a water thing, right? If you look at a yield map in a wet year, well, what all the places that collect water, the crop is dead, right? And in a dry year, where they, they, those are the highest yielding parts of the field. So clearly, it's you know, it's not so much land variability. It's everything's driven by water. We're talking about salinity today. Well, that's you know, you have to understand where the water is and why and where it's going and where it's coming from to understand salinity. So water drives everything and that's, you know, we're sort of jumping into our topic now. Yeah. So that's, that's a good, a good lead in here, you know, so we understand variability is real and, you know, our topic today, salinity and alkalinity and the challenges we face, you know, the question I, I'm going to pose to you, is it, is it in fact, is it a soil structural issue or is it actually a water issue that we're dealing with here on, on a broad base scale? Um, well, I guess, I mean, the dominant factor is water, right? Uh, the water and the parent material. So you can have water problems without salinity problems if your parent material and the groundwater does not have any salt in it, but that's not typically the case. Like uh, most of the parent material has some type of salt content and whatever's dissolved in that and is in your parent material as your water moves around, that, that's gonna be expressed somewhere in, in the landscape, right? So yeah, it's definitely water related. Of course, if you don't have, um, the water has no ability to come up or water has no ability to leach or come down, that, sort of structure side is going to also have an effect, but 
that's more localized than you know the specific types of soils you're in. Yeah. So part of your process and and uh, with Crop Pro is actually, uh, I guess you tell me, but EC mapping, electroconductivity mapping, is one of the tools. In order, when we start getting into this definition of basically saying there is some zones in a field that that are basically under stress or pressure and then when we peel it all back we identify what the real issue is but what are some of the tools that you're using to actually create that definition inside of a field to get to a point of saying hey you know what this is saline and this is actually this isn't saline but this has some sodium or sodic issues yeah well we've since we started we've had some type of a em or ec Based device always to measure soil properties and whether it was various topsoil mapper or EM 38s those are the three machines that we've dealt with extensively um, you know they all basically are making the same map and it's it's dominated by texture water and the solutes dissolved in water and, and so you know in probably 80% of the field um, the texture and water related effects will, you know, be the things that pop out uh, on the on the maps. But whenever you have salinity, then, you know, the numbers might go from in that zero to 100 range to all of a sudden you're into the 300s and 400s. So it pops right off the charts. Uh, so you and then you see that gradient, of course, once you start passing through the 100s to the 400s and and stuff like that. Now we don't use the actual raw data numbers, so I just threw those numbers out, but we generally, what I'd call is we normalize it just to get a you know, range of numbers, maybe between zero and four. Uh, and that just takes out the, what you'd call the annual temporal variability that's created by wet year versus dry year and that type of thing. Yeah. So you, you map a field, it, it shows you the definition of change you know, basis those parameters that you talked about, but then then you are actually soil testing. Correct, yeah, so. Yes. Yeah, so on a typical field, you'll have, usually it's low electrical conductivity in the hills, water is shedding there, uh, they're drier, they're generally the coarser textured parts of the field, so they'll have low EC, and then as you go down the mid slopes, it'll start to collect more water and more solutes that are dissolved in water. And typically it's the depressions then that are have higher water content and higher solute content. Um, and then, so I just described not only the EC layers, but also that, you know, this topography gradient, right? Hills have thinner topsoils and uh, lower organic matter. The depressions typically have higher organic matter and thicker topsoils. So we would go and soil test all those hills together as a zone and say, you know, out of 160 acre field, there's 10 acres of hills and those all go into one bucket. And on the other end of the extremes that we're talking about today, the areas that collect water, have high groundwater, um, they could be flooded depressions or they could be well-drained depressions or they could be saline areas. And so anytime there's salinity, we put that all into one zone. Yeah, and then that would go into it. You know, we would soil test that. So we don't use the actual readings off the devices to define what's the salinity of the area. We actually right. do a lab test for EC, 
you know, that just keeps it consistent. Otherwise, you don't, you know, there's influence of water and texture all the time, messing things up. And unless you actually get a, you know, way to validate exactly what is this number, um, that's not influenced by these temporal things. Gotcha. Yeah. So you, when we piece this all together, you know, you're actually using a multitude of factors, including topography in this equation to actually get down to this definition of saying, you know what, this particular area, this is exactly what we're dealing with here. And, and then you can take it one step further and say, you know what, yes, the soluble salts are actually quite high here, but the sodium concentration is low or, you know what, it has low soluble salts, but this particular zone that isn't producing actually has really high sodium. You know, the parts per million are high. The percentage of sodium in the base is actually sitting at 4%. You can get to that level of definition with the way you take this all the way through. Yeah, and of course, like when you map a field, you don't know that. All you have is this map that shows you areas that are high, areas that are low. So right. it is the soil testing, it is the agronomists going out there and identifying these areas and specifically soil testing them and getting a, you know, chemical analysis to say, what are we dealing with here? Do we have sodium? Do we not? You know, or what types of, what's the EC of this area so that we have an idea what we're dealing with. And lots of times in the field, like the farm farmer doesn't always 100% know, is this area just wet and flooded or is it saline, right? And so you're not going right. to manage everything the same. Like saline areas will never be productive. Wet areas, you don't abandon them like you would a saline area in terms of, you know, fertilizing it for a high yield type of thing. So it, you got to differentiate those things. Yeah. I, uh, leading into this <clears throat> podcast, actually, Mike Galinsky, who uh, is working with us in Taurus, you know, he's feeding me uh, articles and, and uh, papers on this from around the world. And he sent me one as like a 20 page document, but it actually had in there some statistics of, of world production. And it, it estimated that a hundred, uh, if you can believe this or not, um, it estimated that 1 billion hectares or call it 2.2 million acres, 2.2 billion acres in the world are affected by salinity. And there's roughly, uh, it also goes on to state that there's roughly, you know, 20 to 46 million hectares or call it a hundred million acres that are actually still producing, but are still losing production because of background levels of salinity or, or sodic natures of soil. So it's, and it also estimates that it's growing, growing on average every year, upwards of three to 5 million acres a year are growing in, in the productive areas of agriculture. Uh, so it's not going away and it's, it's a huge, huge thing. And yet here we are in Western Canada and you've spent the last 17 years actually defining this down to actually impact areas within a, within a field, which to me is like, it's like, we're like, when you think of it like that, it's like, we're light years ahead, you know, of the understanding that we actually have, which kind of leads us to this next, you know, thought process is okay. You've done a, a tremendous job. You know, you have the definition you've defined, whether it's saline or alkaline, whether it's actually just a water issue, you know, 
caused from ponding with the six inch rain that we got in June or whatever. Um, the question we get is what, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? If it's, you know, if it's impacting, you know, call it billions of acres in the world and, and call it significant acres here in Western Canada, what are we going to do about it? And it bases the acres. Do you touch Corey? What, what uh, percentage of the acres do you think are currently affected um, with some level of salinity or alkalinity that's actually affecting production? Um, well, the acres that we would have mapped, I guess, like I like to use this number of 5%. Um, it's a real easy number. Um, but it's probably like sort of in that range to 5 to 10%. In a general context, um, Sorry, I'll just probably five. There. that's five to ten percent that actually you'd call like on a scale of zero to fifty bushels. That would be zero to ten bushels, kind of. Is that? Sorry, I'm just trying to put it in context, but that are not productive <clears throat> at all. Yeah, I guess you could put it this way: like there's a million acres. Okay. 50,000 yeah. of it would be basically very, very low productivity from a crop standpoint. Yeah. Hopefully they get something growing there, maybe get a little bit of something. And another 50,000 acres would have what I call light salinity that where management can have a, you know, really important effect and people can actually do reasonably well farming through that stuff. So, but it's very regional, right? That you'll go into some areas where it's basically zero. You know, and in the area where we work here, this is the Quill Lakes watershed. It's a well-known watershed with massive water and salinity problems. It's upwards to 15% on average on a person's farm. So a 10,000 acre farmer would have 1,500 acres that he's dealing with. You know, so, um, but on like leading into this, you said, you know, like Western Canada, like we have done a lot, right? Like, yeah, in the past, 20 years, the move to continuous cropping and zero till, uh, right? That's increased water use efficiency. So it's helped to lower the, you know, the issues with high groundwater tables and evaporation. Um, we've, you know, we've already taken a massive improvement that we don't really talk about anymore. So that's, that is a very large thing that we've already done, that producers have done. And I don't see, even in the 12 years that I've worked here, salinity isn't getting worse in Western Canada. It's stable to, similar to our conversation here today, there's lots of great farm managers out there dealing with salinity and trying to, you know, recover acres and make them more productive. Yeah. So that, <clears throat> that was a question I had for you. You are seeing you're seeing an improvement, but you're also seeing a desire to actually try to make a field better by taking, call it maybe not the worst part of the field, but taking something that's slightly affected uh, and trying to figure out how to improve production or, or plant growth in that area. Oh, absolutely. That's been okay. Once those areas are defined and producers immediately switch to how can we manage them? Because until you have a variable rate drill for seed and fertilizer up till then, what can you do? 
like you're farming through it, right? So as soon yeah. as we start to build maps, then it immediately turns to, okay, all well, those areas are super high fertility. Let's, you know, wipe most of the fertilizer, if not all from them. And let's remove fertilizer from the seed row. Let's, you know, maybe increase our seed rate on barley and wheat and oats and crops that, you know, we could use more water and get something growing and compete with weeds. And so, yeah, as soon as you define that you have specific areas, then management and their desire to manage it goes up exponentially. Yeah. So in a simplistic view, the first step on the road to recovery is actually the definition. Would that be fair analysis? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, if a farmer knows his own land pretty well. He obviously knows where he can drive with a piece of equipment and go and do something. But, you know, it, that doesn't mean that he has the ability to apply nutrients and seed and stuff at different rates to or manage his own costs and other things. So, yeah, you, you, now, you need a map. Otherwise, you can't do anything with a piece of equipment by prescription. All right. Hey, we got a question here, Corey. I'll, I'll pose it to you. It kind of relates to this definition mindset. Um, will the same zones based on the EC have the same chemical analysis, or can you have, for example, two yellow zones with different soil chemical results? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's part of the reason why we don't use EC on its own. So, you know, I can give an example of the field that I'm on right here in my home corner is the tops of the hills are eroded knolls, and they'll have a, a same, exact same um, EC as my depressions um, because the eroded knolls, the topsoil is gone, they have a high clay content, high lime content. And then you go down to the depressions and they're high in water and high in gypsum and they'll have the same EC. So yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, you need topography, you need water models to define uh, different ECs and why they are the way they are. So um, yeah, they can have different chemical results, yes. Yeah, which is basically the soil test, essentially. Well, yeah, you, but you have to get them separated. Like on an EC map, they're the same color, right? Yeah. So that's why we build it into a SWAT map where it's like we can turn that eroded knoll into a zone one and say, well, yeah, it's a high EC for a different reason. And we can turn, a, you know, some salinity that's the high groundwater table in a depression into a zone 10. Maybe they have the same EC number, but then when you go out and soil test them, you are going to get two different chemical results, right? The top of the hill is going to have no sulfur, no sulfates in the soil test. The depression is going to be loaded with sulfates. So, yeah, that's that's why you can't use an EC map on its own to build zones. It's a perfect example. Gotcha. Perfect. <clears throat> so topography comes into that equation. Topography, which is essentially modeling water, right? Like topography yep. is... It defines some things, of course, like, you know, where, but yeah, it's the water modeling component of the topography. That's the key thing there. Yep. Okay, perfect. That's, that's the answer we were looking for. So we, we got into this conversation 
so you're seeing this movement with the definition, you know, growers have this desire to actually say, what can we do? You know, we don't like the fact that 5% of our field is producing nothing or there's this, you know, five to 10% or five to 15% of the field that is actually lower producing. You know, what are some of the strategies that you're seeing employed that are actually showing some success? Well, in general, of course, people are hiring us because they want to do variable rate fertilizer and seed. And the first thing you'll notice is that when you soil sample areas with salinity is they're loaded with nutrients, right? They'll, they'll be the highest testing in sulfates, usually the highest in chlorides, highest in nitrogen. They'll probably have accumulations of phosphate because, you know, Water from leachate is leaching out of the straw, moving to those areas, plus traditional topsoil erosion down to those areas type of thing. Um, so they're loaded with nutrients. So it's not a fertility problem and there's no productivity. So the first thing everyone does is cut their fertilizer. Right? There's not going to be any response to fertilizer down there. Matter of fact, fertilizing, it's hurting you. So that would be the number one thing they do. The second thing is deciding whether or not increasing the seed rate is something that they want to do. Okay, that's an easy thing to do, and it's very common with barley, wheat, and oats I mentioned in Western Canada. It's kind of all. Well, it's a little trickier because it's you know, hundred bucks an acre for seed now. So not everyone's trying to use more water and establish more crop in those areas. But that's probably the two most common things people do. Um, and then their mind then would switch to like drainage, right? Because salinity problems are a water problem. How can we reduce water accumulation in the landscape? So surface water drainage, of course, would be the next thing. That would be number one on most people's list. And then once they're done with that, then it's you move on to other things, which I say most people are just getting started in, whether that's tile drainage or use of different crop types or, um, you know, varietal selection, things like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you think the uh, the price of land has an impact on the desire to make a change or look for ways to actually increase productivity? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it goes <laughs> twofold, right? Like, as the price of land keeps rising, you know, it gets harder to buy land and so people will make improvements on the land base that they have and just say I'm going to take this 10% of my acres and try and get those more productive and not increase acres on farming and conversely lots of people make land improvements and you know the value of the land goes up that they improve so yeah there's as time goes I, I mean tile drainage now is a thing here in Saskatchewan like it wasn't five years ago now there's tile plows going there, going all over the place, right? So absolutely, as the land value goes up, people keep trying to make it more and more productive and not be making it more productive, makes it more valuable again. And so, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a mindset, right? <clears throat> you know, I would say the fall of 2019, you know, with crops in the field late, you know, there wasn't a lot of field work done, but I would argue the fall of 2020, you know, you know, the last six weeks driving across the country, you'd say there's been a lot of 
call it if you talk about water management, but in the area of surface surface drainage, you know that there's been a lot of that type of work done here this past few weeks, from what I've seen. Um, but that that's growers basically trying to figure out how to improve the acres they have, right? Um, and I, I don't know the number. I don't know where that breaking point is. But I mean, let's face it: if we're sitting here today and canola's twelve dollars a bushel and peas are eight or nine dollars, and you know, I, I got to believe the desire to pursue success isn't going away. And whether that's in more acres or making your acres better, um, I, I would argue we're already at that tipping point where we need to focus on trying to make our acres we have better. And, and you're telling us that it can it can be done, right? Yeah, and I guess, and I think all, all pretty much all farmers know this. It's like the light salinity issues. You can have a lot of success there. Right, like investing in different things is likely to bring success. It's when you have severe salinity, right? If there's just no way that you can manage the groundwater related issues or however your salinity is coming in, if it's artesian pressure or, you know, recharge areas from highway ditches or sloughs and stuff like that, bathtub rings, like sometimes it's, you can't fix it. Like, you know, you need to be super careful. And so the light salinity, I think, yes, there's lots of opportunity to make slow, steady changes in those areas. But on the severe salinity stuff, um, you can sink a lot of money in there. And, you know, if you can't fix the groundwater problems, uh, you know, temporary little thing fixes aren't going to help you that much. So, you, yeah, they do have to be careful, I guess. Yeah. What do you see? You know, we talk about salinity, which basically encompasses, I mean, all the the ions that we would actually see in salinity from chlorides to sulfates to magnesium sulfates, but that also includes sodium. And how often do you see this definition between, yes, you know what, it's saline or you know what, kind of here we're dealing with a, a sodium issue specifically? Yeah, like in Western Canada, there's not a lot of what you'd call true sodic soils, like where sodium is the only ion causing the problems. It's We tend to have saline, which is, you know, your typical salts, or saline sodic, which is your typical salts plus sodium. Don't have a lot of true yeah. sodic soils. Um, and those those are pretty well mapped out already. And of course, wherever people have those sodic soils, I mean, they also have the, you know, some of the hard pan related structural issues. So because you have a combination of the hard pans and the sodium and the high salt content, I mean, it all shows up on maps pretty well. Um, so, I mean, that just makes it even harder, I guess, to manage because not only do you have just the, water plus a salt problem now you have your you know structural issue too that you're dealing with there so right yeah it's small defined areas of course across western canada that have those specific types of soils yeah so yeah in, in our case and i agree with you a lot of what we see when we talk sodium we're talking saline sodic essentially right where sodium is part of the salinity issue 
you know, one of the ions that's causing problems, but then it, it tends to cause its own problems as far as soil structural issues, right? It kind of makes sodium's kind of like magnesium. It's a very small molecule. And if it becomes in high abundance and it's occupying the soil shells, then you create the soil that has trouble with water, right? It can't, it can't take on water because you, you lose all your structure. So you don't get very yeah. good water infiltration. And when that happens, uh, you can't, can't grow a plant if you have no structure in your soil, right? And that it could lead us into a whole other podcast around, uh, you know, soil health, essentially, right? I mean, this is a growing movement to, you know, going the other way and saying, geez, if we want to have healthy plants, you, you know, what, what comes first, healthy soil or healthy plants? Well, you got to have a healthy plant to actually make a healthy soil, biologically speaking, right? You can't have good biology without a plant. And that's part of the challenge with some of these areas is that if plant growth has been limited, you really haven't done a good job of feeding the biology of the soil over however many years that's, you know, taken place. Right. And so that's where say, what's the first step? Where do we start here? Um, maybe, maybe it's a soil structural play, especially if sodium's part of the salinity that we got to figure out how to address that or get that out of the equation. And, and I don't know if we can get there without, without addressing the water table, right? So it's like this, we live in this, uh, call it the chicken and egg syndrome, what what comes first. <laughs> yeah. We ourselves as tourists, I mean, in this sector, and, and, and I'm, I'm with Corey, I mean, we, I believe the definition is absolutely critical, but but we're there, like we're there, I mean, we're talking you know, Corey being one of the, the founding fathers of variable rate and, and field definition in Western Canada. I mean, call it, we're 20 years into this now. Um, having that ability to define and then say, what are we going to do about it? One of the things we look at is uh, if it's a sodium issue in other parts of the world, we know gypsum is actually a tool that's being used to actually displace uh, that ion on the soil shelf. You know, obviously if I look at say molecule size. So this is like the size of magnesium or sodium. This is the size of a calcium molecule. If you put these in the soil and displace these, you actually increase pore space and water infiltration. You also knock some of that off the shelf. And if you got a place for it to go, then you can actually establish a plant. Once you have a plant, um, then you have a chance to actually draw down that that water table. And so Corey says, you know, a crop like barley, um, I'd even argue actually canola, I find can do not too bad in areas with moderate levels of salinity or, or background levels of sodium. Would you agree or disagree with me on that one? Um, yeah, I guess I don't get too excited about that. I think it, most people would know the crop types do well and the type of salts and the water related issues that they have in their area and like barley i always find an interesting one because when you read the tables it's all like barley well here in the quill lake where the salt salt salts are associated with like so much water barley sucks like it floods out like it doesn't have flooding tolerance so you have to you know consider what is your problem you have a water and a salt problem well barley isn't actually that good um 
I think on like you posed a lot of different ideas there and like the, the idea of soil health and getting crop established yeah that's very important those saline areas they can become just dead right biologically they're dead so yeah and you can't get crops established there there's lots of issues and so really one of the things to consider is people i mean we always say people say you know seed them to something else i said well that's easy if it's like on the edge of a field or something or along the ditch or but when it's 50 spots all spread throughout your field it's not easy to do that right Um, yeah jumping then to your comment on the sodium and stuff yeah gypsum is well known as like it will displace sodium and then but then you need to leach the sodium so if you're in a wet climate or you're under irrigation and you've got somewhere for the water to go well that's great that'll that'll work yes but in western canada how long is it going to take to leach it out like you go down to Weyburn where that's where a lot of our sodium problems are um it's dry right like it's lentil country um yeah. so you know and down there that was sort of the birthplace of doing deep ripping and all these things and a lot of those things what people need to be careful of is if is this temporary or is this permanent you know if it's you can spend thousands of dollars an acre on something but if it only helps for a few years then it goes back to the way it was it wasn't worth it right so and same thing with tiling and those sodium soils. People have to be super careful because you mentioned it, like the soil particles disperse, they're going to smear. And what happens if you lay tile and something like that? It's going to plug the tile off or is tile even going to work if you don't get water through a hard pan smeared, you know, soil structure. So yeah, it's pretty tricky, pretty local, right? Like these things we're talking about are, it's, it's complex, uh, lots of things going on and, uh, you get on Twitter and it's like people just talk about them as if they're all the same. And you can see people from all different geographies and regions and different salt type problems. And some people have acid soils and some people have high pH soils and they're all looking for a one shot solution. Well, it yeah. doesn't work, right? Every, every specific region has different water and salt types and different management practices that are going to work and not work. Yeah. Thank God. I think that's one thing in our society. It's easy to broadband things with a brush, right? And say it, this is the solution. And and yet part of our conversation here today is really talking about the definition and being specific to that field or or that area or that grower and and what are some of the solutions that we need to employ. And and, and honestly, I'm with you. It's It's a multifaceted approach to get to some level of change essentially. And, and then you got to figure out, is that change actually economic or not? Like, can we actually pursue not just success, but success from a profitability perspective, right? I mean, we know, and I'm with you, we don't, I mean, we probably don't need to spend any more money on fertilizer if these areas are loaded, right? But you got to figure out how to establish a healthy plant. If you don't have a healthy plant, it'll never it'll never use that fertility that's there. Um, and in a lot of cases, our main issue is that these plants end up dying of drought stress, even though we're not short of water in those areas. It's actually, you know, the salt gradient 
you know, the osmotic effect is so great that they just can't actually access the water that's there. And that's what usually causes the, the lack of plant growth. So we do have a question here. Is, is it possible to change the structural problem by applying calcium or gypsum? Or is it just not going to happen? I've recommended a lot of calcium without achieving restoring the structure. You know, that's a good question. Um, and I think that Corey kind of alluded to it. I think if that's your only approach without trying to figure out if we can address the movement of a place for some of these salts to go, uh, there's no question calcium is used successfully around the world. I mean, we have a, a product ourselves in our portfolio called Sulfur Plus, which is synthetic gypsum that we're currently using with great success in Western Canada. Uh, you know, a lot of cases as a calcium source where they're low in calcium. Uh, it's also a sulfur source, but we're seeing some effects as an amendment. Uh, part of our reasoning is because is we can actually put it in a seed or most gypsum products in the market are broadcast. You can't handle them through our Western Canadian air seeders. Whereas we're trying to concentrate, call it 100 or 200 pounds in the seed row and saying, you know what, I don't think we can change the soil but maybe in that seed row environment, because we have a granule that you can handle, you can actually, for a period of time, alter the environment for that seedling or for the plant. And if you can get it established, growing roots, then you have a chance to actually use some nutrition and use some of that water. And does it change the soil in it forever? And I'd say no, because I mean, you're talking about a, a 2000 pound gorilla that is going to fight its way back, like Corey said. But maybe if we can get some plant established on an annual basis, you have a fighting chance to use water. You have a fighting chance to to actually use some nutrition. And some of that nutrition actually is probably also part of the issue on the salinity side of it too. We've fed some salinity over these over these years where we've added nutrition or nutrients, but no no usage. And so it's it's one tool but it's part of an overall strategy, um, which could also include either surface drainage or at some point, um, you know, maybe even to the point of tile. And um, I, I, I followed uh, or looked at a presentation done by Les Henry in 2010 here the other day, and it was really good. I really enjoyed it. But Les said even then, you know, basis his experience, you know, especially dealing with displacing sodium, it's a two part. You gotta, you gotta have a place for it to go but you have to use something like a gypsum to displace the sodium off the soil shelf. And I agree. I agree with Les. And so those are some of the things that we're trying to do here is, you know, maybe on a micro scale in a seed row or a band, but maybe not necessarily across the broad spectrum of, you know, 2 million pounds of soil. Cause that's, that's really tough to, you know, you're talking tons, tons and tons of material and you still may not win. You still may not, it still may fight its way back. So yeah, that's a long answer to a short question, but yeah, I mean, maybe gypsum in a broad base, it's hard to change the soil, but in our world, they're saying maybe in a microsite effect in a seed row, we can have some, you know, annual effects to actually get plants growing or established. Yeah, uh, to that, the, the, the user said, you know, can't achieve restoring the structure. Well, if you have those prismatic columnar structures out there, you know, you can add a lot of calcium and you're not going to bust that up, right? It's like a massively compacted soil structure. So you are going to have to physically 
bust those or bust them with roots or, you know, that's a slow, slow process to changing that. So I think that's probably yeah. the big thing is just to patience with these things. And I like what you mentioned about the soil amendments and we need to, like, I, I like that of getting crop, just helping the crops to get established. And once they get going, maybe they can use water, you know, maybe they can add some biology to the soil slowly. We can, start recovering those areas with a like a micro soil amendment approach um, yeah I like that yeah yeah I think it's uh, you know and I, we're going to enter this phase and Corey's well aware of it too with this customer base and, and people that we deal with across the broad market is you know soil health is is not going to go away because I think it's I believe in it too but it's it's a definitely it's a consumer a consumer story that consumers are kind of they and they like it even though they don't understand the science behind it all they like the idea of talking about soil health and in the yet in all reality in our world what we truly need to talk about is plant health right if we can make healthy plants we have a fighting chance to make healthy soil and, and i think Corey would agree that you know, he, he could go to any one of his fields that has been mapped for the last 17 years and tell us where the most productive area of that field is. And I would argue, if we looked at the biology in that area, that will have the, the best biology. Like, it'll have the best soil health because it's always growing the most productive plants. So there's a correlation there, and that's something that we probably are lacking or missing in these areas that haven't really produced a lot of plant material, you know, over the years. And it kind of leads to this question here, you know, do you know of any specific soil health strategies that have shown some potential success and salinity without drainage? Um, you know, I'll, it's kind of funny, I'll throw this out here, but as crazy as it sounds, you know, something like kochia, <laughs> it's a plant that's growing using water and we hate hate it. It's it's a bad weed in the marketplace. Do you see that as a as a strategy or as a hinder? Well, I guess I'm more <laughs> got my farmer hat on here. See, <laughs> kosha is a, well. I don't know. I don't like. I I understand how it could be used, but no, I think yep. there's lots of annual and perennial crops that we know uh, you know have a good establishment and can live in salinity and i would focus more on using those right like whether it's annual blends or you know that type of thing i, I i'm not in love with kosher but um, <laughs> you know but you are right you know there's the questions coming up here on other specific soil health strategies um yeah i think that on the topic of soil health, like we are always treating the area where we see the problem, right? And we forget that, okay, well, why is it there? So if you don't have a high water table issue, you probably don't have a salt issue. So if people start to take a few steps back and say, well, what can I do to, you know, do a better job of managing water if we start back go way back you know and in my field out here it's a perfect example is in the summer the hills are drying up and i'm losing yield and the depressions are always they have a high water table and 
the, the yield isn't the highest in those areas because they're too wet, right? And then, then I sit here and we're talking about drainage and the salt issue. <laughs> well, the reality is how can we increase infiltration across the field? Well, let's keep the water on the hills. Let's keep the water on the mid slopes. Let's, let's not drain the water, right? Like yeah. everybody in Western Canada is losing yield on their hills. Well, we don't talk about that. Like we just talk about how to spend a million dollars on drainage equipment and dump it out the other end and get rid of it like it's worthless when it's right. not the right solution. Um, and same thing with managing these salt affected areas. I think that people have to get more into, okay, if I'm seeding through them, okay, yeah, we can reduce fertilizer and stuff, but no one talks about something that I've lobbied for for years. We talk about canola and barley. That's just, let's use wheat for an example. What's our most flood and saline tolerant wheat variety? Like, see, we don't know. Yeah. Right? No, so this is, we have 200 canola varieties and we know what's best for the mid slopes in our zone, in our, you know, mid slope zones. Well, who cares? Like I've always yeah. said, out of 200 canola varieties, I want to know one or two or three that are saline and flood tolerant and I can specifically seed those I don't care if they yield five bushels an acre if they establish and they compete with weeds and they do something get a plant growing there then you're doing something and like the North Dakota State University has done lots of that work they've done it with soybeans they've done it with wheat where they'll take all the existing varieties and just you know do what we call screening right screen them for flood and salinity tolerance and then the producers know oh these varieties are better than the other ones so we can go and see those right so there's other things that we can do that we don't even talk about and i get really <clears throat> frustrated it's like well let's increase the seeding rate of wheat well if it's not a salt tolerant and salt and flood tolerant variety it just dies anyway right, right. maybe some varieties aren't that way so there's lots of things actually that we can do that we don't even talk about because they're not on our mindset, but we need to keep water in the field and not have it running downhill and, you know, recharging all our sloughs and depressions and leading to a high water table. Uh, we need yeah. to grow crops and varieties down there that are gonna establish and compete with weeds. And even if there's no yield of something, there might as well be some annual crop growing in there that's salt and water tolerant. So you should be seeding something into there while you're seed, whether it's through your drill or you know, last year we did some drone seeding where we, you know, you could fly around a 10,000 acre farm and seed 500 acres with a drone in a few days, like top spreading it on top of the mm. ground before you, like there's lots of things people could do. We just, we don't think about them yet. We're they're very traditional in our mindset. Yeah. It's like a light bulb moment for me <laughs> when you actually mentioned managing water in, in a hilltop and you say, oh, yeah, we're talking about salinity and the depressions and recharge areas, but you're right. A lot of it in our topography and our dryland farming is because the water isn't staying in certain areas and then it causes loss of production in those areas. Right. So it's, uh, you know, what can we do in that area, you know, to, to save the water, you know, save the water in that area. And that, that's a whole other conversation, but it's like, it's like a light bulb moment for me right now to say, choose that you know, do a 180 here and say, geez, let's start having a conversation. Is there, what can we do there? So oh, that's cool. I'm glad you brought that up. 
we are getting questions around P, PGPRs, you know, help plants establish in salt areas like salt tolerant grasses, you know, why not alfalfa, you know, Kim's asking. Uh, I agree, and those strategies are employed and work, especially I find here, like um, southwestern Manitoba, a lot of our salinity is, you see it from the road, because it's along the road, right? It's like we created this impermeable layer of the natural flow of, of water in the ground by building a road and packing the clay, and then the salts stop right there. They can't get there, so you drive for a mile, and you say, oh, geez, that, that looks ugly, but it's because we created it. We created that impermeable layer so there you say fair enough you know maybe in that zone you take the first hundred feet from the road and you plant it to something that actually tolerates the salinity and if you get plants established then maybe you can actually you know move the water table and and then get a crop in there like barley right behind it or something like that so i agree that but that still requires definition because you're taking growers that are farming thousands of acres and now you're going to say let's take this 10 or 15 acres along the road and do something different. And a lot of times logistically growers don't like doing that. <laughs> so it could be part of a solution. Right. Yep. <clears throat> I had the question and, and I was going to bring this up and this is one other thing we're involved in is there is a, a growing belief and this is, you know, from the scientific community and this goes back to the soil health and we're involved in it too. But, you know, using an organism like mycorrhizae to actually help plants navigate water utilization and, and, and mitigation of salt stress. And, and actually, Mike sent me this article. It's a 20-page document on, on mycorrhizal effects and salinity. And it's not, it's not proven, but, you know, there's definitely work going into that area. Um, I had the question, you know, does kochia colonize mycorrhizae? I don't know that answer. I believe it does. And maybe that's partly why kochia and foxtail barley <clears throat> actually do better in, in higher saline areas because they are potential good hosts for, for mycorrhizal fungus. Um, but we'll look into that and, and get that answer to you. Um, but that, that definitely is in the world of using biology to actually help us. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny because we're talking about trying to come up with solutions in the course of farming this land over the last 60, 80, 100 years. And yet you take plants like kochia or foxtail barley or organisms like mycorrhizae, you could argue they've been around trying to figure out salinity since the beginning of time. Right? They, they got a few million years head start on us on trying to figure out how to adapt in the environment that they're presented. And so I say there's something that we can learn from nature. I mean, nature, sometimes we're trying to outsmart nature, but in all reality, sometimes we've got to take take a step back and, and look at plants and say, how, how are they doing it? How is kochia doing it in that area? What has it done to adapt itself to be able to grow in that environment where we take an annual crop like, like, a, like, like Corey says, like a wheat and it, and it can't or a soybean and it can't. So what can we learn from nature and plants themselves? And that's why I say maybe we do need to look closer at things like mycorrhizae and, and i would say the scientific community is they are looking at it and saying is it a a biological tool that we could use to actually help us help some of these plants establish so we've done lots of like the respiration tests so the most common one people know is solvita right where they're measuring respiration of the soil um 
when they, the, the thought was always to use it as a nitrogen mineralization tool to see what the bugs are, you know, how much, you know, microbial activity you have. But one thing we find with those saline soils is that there's very low respiration. Yeah. Right. So it's good always to think when you look at PGPR, well, that's fine. But if it's, if it's any type of microbial or bacterial species community, that's, that's not, it's like, they're like crops too. Like they, they don't survive. They don't, there's very specific ones that are going to survive in a saline environment. So like in general, um, if you're just putting something out of a bag or a jug, expecting it to help you in the salinity, uh, I would say it's probably not a great idea. Like you, unless you've defined that this thing's going to survive there, it's no different than seeding a certain crop type. You need to know. And on the foxtail barley topic, like because I've like I've worked in lots of this land with foxtail barley, and yes, it'll colonize those areas. But what I find with foxtail and a lot of those salt tolerant weeds is that they have a lot of allelopathy, right? Like if you don't get rid of foxtail, you can't establish some other type of crop. Right. Um, so you've got to be pretty kind of careful with those sort of strategies. And, you know, like it's not some of nature's, the things that survive in nature, like, like in a field situation, like if you go into nature, nature, it's not dominated by foxtail barley and kosher. That's only in a crop right. production nature, right? And so it has different ways that it's adapted, but that doesn't mean that it's good, in my opinion. Like that's why I say I don't like kosher, I don't like foxtail bar, I don't like those <laughs> things to use to manage salinity because they they've learned to manage salinity so they can be weeds in our crop system. So uh, I'm not a lover yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the survival of the fittest essentially, and they've learned to adapt in a kind of call it a monoculture environment very well where other crops can't, right? But I'm saying, yeah, we don't, I'm with you. I'm not sure we want to use it as a tool, but what can we learn from how they adapted? You know, what, what yeah. can we learn from what, what made them successful essentially? And even to a point you're saying liliopathy there, they've even got one more defense mechanism to block everything else from coming in. Right. So, which is kind of cool when you think of it from a plant perspective. Uh, we're getting to the end of our time here, Corey. Um, I, I had this question around fertilization versus remediation, but I, you know, I'm kind of looking at it from a world stage, and and yet I could argue, basis what we just talked about in the last hour, we've probably, you know, we think of remediation. I, I was thinking more like the eastern U.S. They do lots of liming because they have low pH soils. That's one way they make them more productive. Here, you know we're dealing with more background levels of salinity due to water issues, um, which is more a higher pH. But I think we spent the last hour actually talking about remediation strategies uh, that, that is multifaceted. Um, it's not a, it's not a one dimensional approach. You know, there's a, a number of tools that we have at our fingertips and, and it's enlightening. I'd say if, if we use them collectively, I think there's an opportunity to actually, you know, claw our way back in some of these areas, right? Maybe not the dead, dead, but the transitionary areas is probably where we would start. Would you agree with that thought process? Yeah, the transition areas, like you know, all these little things that people can start to do, definitely help them to make slow 
continual process or progress yet. Yeah. So that's good. So you're, you know, to sum it up, obviously definition is imperative, you know, identifying the areas that we could address, um, employing strategies from surface drainage to trying to uh, establish crops. You're talking, you, you employ higher seeding rates to try to get some plant establishment in those areas. Um, you know, we talk about depending on the complexity of the, the salinity, whether there's some sodium in it, you know, we were saying seed applying calcium sulfate in a tight band can change the complexity of the soil or the structure as a tool to help plants establish. Um, and then we get into this whole idea of soil health and that only comes with plant health. We can't get there without, with, uh, we can't have healthy soil unless you have plants feeding carbon into the soil to create healthy biology. So, um, you know, tile, tile definitely is something that is happening and, and been utilized around the world for hundreds of years actually, but, but it's a cost thing. So price of land, um, and, I, and I say we're here now, I mean, you know, $12 canola growers will spend what they have to, to get the quarter beside them if they want it. Um, but they don't like the idea that there's 5% or 10% of it that's not productive. And I think we're going to see this movement of trying to employ strategies to, to improve that, that, that area or areas of the field that aren't, aren't producing like they could. So it's a battle, but I think it's one that we're prepared to uh, take part in and help where we can still comes down to economics, right? Don't do it. If it can't make you a dollar, you got to figure out how to, how to, uh, get to a point of profitability. So <clears throat> with that, any other closing thoughts or comments you'd have, Corey? No, I don't think so, I guess. Uh, thank you very much for having me today. It was fun. Yeah. Everyone learned a little something and yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, I appreciate your insight and your input and, you know, hopefully, yeah, the, the audience that uh, took part, uh, can uh, take something home. Uh, there is a couple more questions that uh, I'll maybe just throw out there quickly. You know, leaving cattail sloughs and tree lines along alone to help manage water levels. You know, is that a thought? And I said, maybe, you know, cattails are plants that are growing. Um, tree lines definitely are probably accessing water to lower the water table. It's maybe not a bad strategy. Thoughts there, Corey? Yeah, that's a tricky one because it's, I would say, again, that's like very region specific, right? So sometimes, you know, I'll use tree lines as an example. If it fills up with three feet of snow and takes an extra two weeks for the water to all leave them, then, you know, it's actually adding to your water levels and people, all the snow blew off and into the creeks. So that that's a tricky one, but... And if they're like potholes all throughout the whole entire field, like and those fill with water, um, you know that that keeps the water table up. And around every single pothole, you can have a recharge and a discharge area. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, they they do use more water. Obviously, cattails, sloughs, and trees use a heck of a lot more water than a than a wheat or barley plant. Um, so it, that's a tricky question because it's very regional specific. Like in some regions, it'll help and others it won't yeah okay uh just to close 
uh, you want to list your website, people want more information on your business and reach out to you. What's your website, Corey? Sure, yeah, we have croppro.ca. That's our local agronomy website. And then for all our partners and technology, it's swapmaps.com. So thanks for coming on and, and uh, enjoyed the time, Corey, and the conversation. And, and I'm sure, like always, it'll spawn more questions, which is that's the business we're in is you, you find an answer and you create two more questions. So it's, uh, that's the whole point of it. So anyway, thanks again. Um, Thank you. Stay safe and, and we'll see you soon. Take care.